I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Genesis, looking at Genesis 12, verses 4 to 20 for our time together this morning. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep. Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, Here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. May God bless the reading of his word. So in the previous passage, we looked at the wonderful promises given by God to Abram. One commentator notes how these promises were the gracious counterbalance to the curses against fallen creation and humanity. The promise of land, nationhood, the presence of God, and blessing to the nations restores what mankind lost 
in the fall. And we saw how these promises went from being personal promises, right? I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. To global promises. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that the the psalmist could say in Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. These are truly wonderful promises. But how could they possibly come true? And after all, Abram's wife Sarai was barren. She had no child. Moreover, we just read in our text that Abram was 75 years old. So how could God fulfill his promise of a great nation to an old man with a barren wife? This is a good question. Looking at Abram's circumstances, we would expect him to question God's promises. Maybe we ourselves have looked at our own circumstances and found ourselves wondering how God could possibly fulfill his promises to us. But as we'll see in our text, God's promises never falter and they never fail. We can trust God to keep his promises to his people, even when his people mess up. That's going to be our roadmap for our time together this morning. We can trust God to keep his promises to his people, even when his people mess up. Look at verse four. After receiving these wonderful promises from God, it says that Abram went as the Lord had told him. All right, so we we don't see Abram question God. We don't see him talking over with his wife. We, We don't see him tossing and turning in his bed, wondering how all of this could possibly come true. You know what we see? We see simple trust and obedience. God said, go, so Abram went. And just like Noah before him, we see Abram trust in the Lord and obey him immediately. But how can Abram leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house like this? It it seems so impossible. And it's, it's later that the author of Hebrews will use this as an illustration of what faith is like. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. That's what we see, by faith. Verse 5 says, Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and all the people that they had acquired at Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. By faith, he went. Now Moses spends very little time actually talking about the the journey, the hundreds of miles that it would have been with, with all these kinds of flocks and herds. All he records for us is that they set out for the land of Canaan and that they arrived there. And it's because what is more important is what happens once 
Abram arrives in the land of Canaan. Moses continues. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through to the land, passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Right, so as soon as as soon as Abram entered the land, he would have seen that it was a good land. Moses will later tell the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 10, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. And the land of Canaan was like another paradise. It's like another garden in Eden like the garden of the Lord. But Abram's delight is short-lived. It says that he passed through the place to the place of Shechem. Now Shechem was considered to be the center of the land of Canaan. And that's Shechem. At the center of the land of Canaan was the oak of Moreh. Why is that significant? Well, the, the word Moreh here means teacher. So the Oak of Moreh is likely a reference to a soothsayer's tree where the Canaanites sought to hear oracles from their gods. There will be a later reference to this tree in Genesis chapter 35, verse 4, where Jacob, returning from Haran, would collect all the foreign gods that his household had brought with them, and he would bury them under the Terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And so we see in the very heart of the land promised by God to Abram, idolatry is alive and well. But then verse 6 concludes rather ominously. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now you might remember that the Canaanites were descendants of Canaan, the grandson whom Noah had cursed. In other words, the land to which the Lord had led Abram was occupied territory by the offspring of the serpents. Abraham had come all this way, trusting the Lord, and he finds the land occupied. And not only is it occupied, it's, it's occupied by the accursed Canaanites. So, uh, you know, Abram's 75 years old. He's an old man with a barren wife. But now he's entering into this occupied land. How now will God fulfill his promises? Will Abram begin to doubt God's promises? Will he turn back and go to his homeland where there was already this kind of idolatry? And it's precisely at that spot, right there in the midst of the land of the idolatrous Canaanites that the Lord appears to Abram and promises in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. That is the land of the Canaanites. And Abram's response to God's promise 
of this land is profound. As soon as he hears that this is the land that God will give to his offspring, verse 7 says that he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Right? So at the very center of the land of Canaan, within view of the Canaanite shrine, the Oak of Moreh, Abram built an altar to the Lord. It's significant that he doesn't build a city or a tower, as we've seen previously. He builds an altar. Verse 8 says that he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And again, built an altar to the Lord. And just like the offspring of the woman back in Genesis chapter 4, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 9 says that Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And in Genesis 13, verse 18, we read that Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of, of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built yet another altar to the Lord. Now, why does Moses include all of that? Why, why does Moses emphasize the fact that Abram is journeying through the promised land, and as he's doing so, he's building various altars to the Lord right next to these Canaanite shrines. What's the significance here? Well, it's significant because it's a way for Abram to claim this land for the Lord. Abram is claiming this land for the Lord. In Genesis 8, verse 20, what was the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark? It says that he built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And by building an altar to the Lord, Noah was dedicating the cleansed earth to the worship of the Lord. He was declaring that all the earth belongs to the Lord. And in the same way, by building altars to the Lord at strategic locations in the promised land, right? You got Shechem, you've got uh, Hebron, and uh, what was the other place? Bethel. Three very significant places that we're going to see throughout Genesis. Very strategic locations in the promised land. Abram is dedicating the promised land to the worship of the Lord. It's it's like Abram is planting flags around the promised land. Do you, do you, do you guys know the, the, the iconic picture of the American soldiers raising the flag? I believe it's, it's, uh, it's in Iwo Jima during World War II. That, that picture where all these men are, are trying to, to lift this American flag up and plant it. There. It's like Abram is planting these flags around the promised land and he's declaring that this land belongs to the Lord. In this land, the Lord will be worshipped and obeyed. In this land, not the Canaanite gods, which are right there, but the Lord will be king. Abram is claiming the land for the kingdom of God. Now, for the Israelites hearing this story about Abram, the message would have been quite obvious, right? They... They were about to try to conquer the land of Canaan. But like their 
fathers before them, they feared the mighty Canaanites and their powerful gods. Their fathers had refused to enter the land, and now, 40 years later, they're on the cusp of entering into this same land, this next generation, and they're waiting for for orders to attack. And the, the message is clear that the Lord is calling us to claim the promised land for the Lord. The Lord is calling us to claim the promised land for the Lord. But in calling Israel to claim the the land of Canaan for God's kingdom, we must understand that God has a universal design. There's a universal design. Look back at verse 3. You see that the Lord said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what we see here is that God has the whole earth in view, not just the promised land, though it would begin with the promised land. As you just as the, uh, the Allied invasion of Normandy in 1944 was the first step in liberating all of Europe, so also the conquering of the land of Canaan was the first step in liberating the entire world and claiming all nations for the kingdom of God. So what does this mean for us? Should we go around building altars to the Lord and declaring that this land belongs to the Lord? Not necessarily, although I suppose you can do that if you so desire. Instead, we we get this commission from Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19. I've referenced this at several points throughout our study on Genesis. But after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus commanded his disciples saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the Lord is calling us to claim all nations for the Lord. And how we will do this is not by building altars necessarily, not by military efforts, but by going and making disciples. So we could say this is what building altars looks like today. As we go and make disciples of all nations, it's like we're planting flags around the world, here, there, everywhere, declaring that the Lord is king and that the earth belongs to him. Because if you think about it, we're going back to to Genesis chapter 1. We are created in the image of God to represent God to all of creation. So by redeeming each person, it's like all of creation is seeing the redemption to come. All the earth is seeing that the earth belongs to the Lord. The whole earth, not not just strategic locations around the world. It's, It's not like God is just after places like Las Vegas. Although he is after places like Las Vegas, and I don't use Las Vegas as a reference, that's the lowest place on earth. It's the point of reference. He's also after Las Vegas, but he's after the whole world. He's after Boyle, we must understand. He wants it all. And just like the the promises in verses 1 to 3, the Lord's promise of the land here 
will gradually fill up. Right? It's, it's going to begin with Abraham's purchase of a burial plot for Sarah, his wife, in Genesis 23. Then under Joshua, with the capture of the land of Canaan in, in Joshua chapter 21. And then finally, we're going to see it with the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. But this is about more than just a piece of property. Abram realized that the land of Canaan was not his final destination. Rather, his sojourn would end in a glorious city built by God. I mean, that's that's what the writer of Hebrews is, is alluding to when he writes in Hebrews 11, verses 9 to 10. By faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So instead of a sojourner living in tents, Abram would one day be a permanent resident in the city built by God. And the same is true for all those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith. In 2 Peter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's, it's something we're, we're longing for, rightly. Right? God has promised the, the new earth to his people. This is our inheritance. As the land of Canaan was, was Israel's inheritance, so the new earth will be the inheritance of the people of God. In Revelation 21, the apostle John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then he sees paradise on the earth once again. He writes in in uh, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. As we see, one day the earth will again be like paradise. It will be a wonderful place with plenty of food and drink. A place with with meaningful work, caring for, for God's creation the way we were always intended to. And and. Most importantly, close fellowship with God the way we were always intended to be. The restored earth will be God's gift to his people. That's a promise that will not fail because God does not fail. We can trust in the Lord and obey what he has commanded because his promises are sure. We've seen that thus far in in Genesis and, and we see it all throughout scripture, even in our own lives, we see that that's true. And holding on to this trust in the Lord and, and this trust in that his promises are sure is especially important in light of the second half of our text. <laughs> so Ab- Abram's faithful response of obedience in coming to the land and claiming the land according to God's promises is, going, is, is now followed by an event in his life that raises some questions concerning his actions. Look at verse 10. 
Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. All right. Two things stick out, stuck out to me here. First, a life of faith does not mean a famine-free life. All right, a life of faith does not mean a famine-free life. Abram displayed incredible faith in God by leaving his country and his relatives and his father's house to go to the land that God would show him. He, he didn't even know where he was going. He was going to the land that God would show him. Now, if you were Abraham, you would expect to sit back and relax and enjoy the good life in, in God's good land, right? Wrong. Even though... We have put our trust in God. We continue to live in a Genesis 3 world, a sin-sick world, a famine-riddled world until the, the, the restoration of all things, which is coming. And until that day, God is, is testing the, the genuineness of our faith, right? Will, will you give up now? Right? How about now? Right? Like, what we see often throughout scripture is that faith is regularly followed by famine or trial or tribulation or, or testing or, or something of that, that sort. It's, it's, it's how God works. And unless we think that God is somehow unfair for testing our faith in him, listen to the words of James the brother of Jesus. In James 1, verses 2 to 4, Elwood read this for us in, in the remembrance service this morning. He writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so what we see here is that various trials of various kinds are not meaningless. Trials of various kinds are not meaningless. Rather, they're producing something in us. This light momentary affliction, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't, don't think that that your affliction or your, your trial or your testing is meaningless. It's producing something in you that is beyond anything you can imagine. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing we, we see is that there's a famine in the land and Abram's faith in God is being put to the test in order that Abram might, might come out of it perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then the second thing we see is that unlike Genesis 12, verse 1, where there's a clear command by God to go to the land of Canaan, there is no divine command telling Abram to leave the promised land to go somewhere else. The, the famine had created this fear of starvation. And, and like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Abram failed to trust God's word. Even though God had, had promised unfathomable blessings to, to Abram and to his offspring, Abram was now looking famine in the face. And what he did is what we so often do when we're faced with our own dilemmas. He failed to remember God's promises 
and he failed to trust God for provision. And instead, he fled to Egypt, where he felt he, he would be cared for there. And, and granted, it had the, the Nile, and it was luscious. So granted, there was provision there. But it wasn't a provision that he trusted in God for. Now look at verse 11. As Abram is about to enter Egypt, he says to his wife, Sarai, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. And they'll kill me, but they will let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. So so regardless of, of whether or not Abram should have journeyed to Egypt, here we find a clear error on the part of Abram. Abram fears that the Egyptians will kill him in order to take his wife. Now, now to be fair, Egypt was a great and mighty nation at this point. So Abram's fear of Egypt doing something like this is, is legitimate. It was, it was possible that that would happen. But again, rather than, than trusting God to provide for him, Abram comes up with this, this deception in order to save his life. Now, it's true that Sarai was Abram's half-sister. In Genesis 20, verse 12, Abram's going to say, She indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So it's it's a half-truth, but a half-truth is still a lie, as we know. And what's interesting about that is that this is how the devil operates, isn't it? Operating on half-truths. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus Jesus refers to the devil as the the father of lies. There there was enough truth in what he says to make it believable, but in the end, he's still a liar. And here, Abram is acting more like an offspring of the serpent than he is acting like an offspring of the woman. Because just just like the the serpent in the Garden of Eden would deceive the woman into eating the fruit of the tree of which they were to not eat, so also Abram would deceive the Egyptians into believing that the woman was his sister. And this isn't the only time that this happens, by the way. Even in the life of Abraham. Later in Genesis 20, Abraham is going to do the same thing to Abimelech. And again, it's not going to turn out well. Then Abraham's son, Isaac, is going to do the same thing to uh, Abimelech, saying that his wife, Rebecca, is his sister, right? So the apple doesn't far, fall too far from the tree. But over and over again, you, you see women offered up so that men can go free. Right? We, we saw it with Adam in Genesis chapter 3, right? Where he blamed his wife for giving him the forbidden fruit. Like, this woman who you gave me, right? That's, that's Adam passing the blame in order that he might go free. Uh, We'll see this with Genesis chapter 19, where Lot offers his daughters to the sinful men of Sodom. Then we're going to see, well, in Judges 19, the Levite offers his concubine to the sinful men of Gibeah. And so it's, but but it's, it's always at the expense of women. And you see that over and over and over again throughout scripture. 
women being offered up so that men can go free. Sarai is paying the price so that Abram can feel safe in Egypt. That's, that's essentially what's going on here. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw, indeed, that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. All right, have you ever thought about the fact that Sarai is 65 years old at this point? Like she, she was a woman of extraordinary beauty. This wasn't something that, that Abram noticed about her. This was something that the Egyptians also noticed about her. She's so beautiful that she's taken into Pharaoh's house as his wife. And, and I don't know how many wives he, he had, but Sarai's is added to that number. And in a sick and twisted series of events, Abram benefits from this arrangement. And so Pharaoh treats Abram very well, and he makes him very rich. It was, it was customary in that culture for a man to provide gifts to the family of the woman he would marry. And since Abram is posing as her brother, it would make sense to give the family member all this dowry, this kind of dowry, in order to... Uh, to have Sarai as a wife. But we must not conclude that all of this prosperity that Abram is receiving is what God had in mind when he said to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, right? Prosperity and blessing are not the same thing. Prosperity and blessing are not the same thing. There are veins within within Christianity that try to make these the same thing. The, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you're rich, it's because you're blessed by God. That's not true. Abraham's prosperity here does not come from living by faith in the promises of God. It comes from his sin. Let's be very clear here. That doesn't mean that God cannot bring good out of evil, as we'll see later with the story of Joseph but we must not think that God is in favor of Abram's actions here because what Abram has done has threatened God's plan to restore God's kingdom on the earth. The, the offspring of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, the, the offspring that, that would come through Abram and Sarai is in jeopardy because of Abram. And and there's nothing that Abram or Sarai can do, no, no power in and of themselves to remedy this situation. By, by all appearances, they've failed. And they're incapable of bringing out a good outcome of this. But just like we saw with the flood and just like we saw with the Tower of, of Babel, we see... God graciously intervene for the sake of his faithfulness. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God had said to, to Abram, I will bless you. Bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But here, Abram is not acting as an instrument of blessing to the nations. Instead, he's the the cause of their curse. He's the cause of their affliction. Now, we're not told how Pharaoh actually comes to realize that the plagues came because of Sarai, but somehow he comes to that conclusion. The, the fact that the text doesn't say that, that Sarai suffered any affliction might have been a clue for them. <laughs> God, here's, here's one person in the whole house who's doing just fine. Maybe, maybe she's the reason for that. I don't know. But when Pharaoh does find out, he rebukes Abram. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Notice Abram's silence in the text. He's not building altars to the Lord anymore. (laughs) He's not calling upon the name of the Lord. He's silent during Pharaoh's rebuke. And after that, he promptly leaves Egypt. So here, here was a man of faith who doubted that God would keep his promises. Yet we see how God was faithful to his promises to protect his servant and and the offspring of the woman, even when his servant lived by fear, not by faith. Abram doesn't deserve to have the story end on a a good note. (laughs) He doesn't deserve to have his wife back. He doesn't deserve the the wealth that he received from Pharaoh's hand. The wealth that, you'll notice, Pharaoh doesn't ask for it back. Do you know what Abram receives? He receives grace. He receives what he does not deserve. And and that's the point of this story, isn't it? Though Abram was utterly faithless, God remained faithful. And this is good news for you and I because we are all like Abram, aren't we? We are naturally faithless. But thanks be to God, our walk with God is not dependent on our faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is such good news for us. We we do not deserve so great a God as we see in our text. But do you know what we receive by faith in Jesus Christ? We receive grace. Even in the the midst of our, our sins and our failures in Christ, we receive what we do not deserve. 
This is what God has promised his people. He's promised grace in Christ. And he will not fail to fulfill his promises. One, one more thing. There, there is a connection with, with this story and the Exodus. I don't know if you caught that in the text. But Moses is writing Genesis to this people as they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. And they're on the cusp of entering into the promised land, right? And think about the parallels that they would have seen between these two stories. This story of, of Abram and the story of the Exodus, right? Just as Abram migrated to Egypt because of a famine, so also Jacob's family at the end of Genesis will go down to Egypt because of a famine. Just as Sarai became a sort of slave in Pharaoh's house, so also the Israelites will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just as the future offspring was in jeopardy when Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house, so also the future of Israel would be in jeopardy when the Egyptians tried to stop the Israelites from multiplying by killing off all the male children. Just as God afflicted Pharaoh and his house with plagues to protect Sarai, so also God would afflict the Egyptians with plagues to deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt. Just as Pharaoh sent Abram out from Egypt, so also a later Pharaoh would send Israel out of Egypt. Just as the Egyptians added to Abram's wealth, so also the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians upon leaving Egypt. So we see that this story is meant to be a word of hope to God's people. That the same God who delivered Abram and brought him out of Egypt and back into the promised land would one day bring them back as well. That they too will enter the promised land. And this story is meant to be a word of hope for us as well. Think about the the parallels between these two stories and our story. Just as Abram and Israel were in bondage, so also we were in bondage to sin and death. Just as Abram and Israel could do nothing to remedy their situation, so also we could do nothing to remedy our situation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Just as someone else took the curse on behalf of Abram and Israel so that they could go free, so also Jesus took the curse on our behalf so that we could go free. And just as Abram and Israel received wealth from the Egyptians, so also we have received a wealth of spiritual blessings in Christ. And just as Abram and Israel would one day go back to the promised land, so also one day we will enter into the new earth, the restored earth, the true and better promised land. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is our story. And we have Hope, we, we can have hope that nothing and no one can derail God's promises, not even God's people. The, the restoration of all things is coming. That, that's, that is happening. Now, maybe we're, we're looking at our circumstances and we're, we're wondering how God could possibly fulfill his promises to us. Or, or maybe we feel like 
we've messed up one too many times and whatever good plans that God had in store for us, we've ruined. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we can have confidence that even when we get in the way of what God is doing, Jesus is still building his church and the gates of hell are still not prevailing against it. Broader than the ocean wide, stronger than its highest tide, deeper than its measuring rod are the promises of God. So sure, so certain. I don't know what God has in store for this church. I don't know what he has in store for Boyle. But I know that Jesus will be true to his word and that there's, there's nothing, not us, not the world, not the flesh, not the devil, that will derail his promises. Through his people, Jesus will bless the world. We can be sure of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious promises for us who are in Christ Jesus, uh, for, for, for choosing us before the foundation of the world, for adopting us into your family, for redemption and forgiveness of sins. We thank you for your glorious promises for the world, how you are redeeming a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we just ask that you would help us to be a blessing to the nations. That you would forgive us for the times when we are more a curse than a blessing. Thank you that your promises are not dependent upon us. For in our sin and deception and hypocrisy, we would have failed long ago. But you do not fail. For which we are so grateful. We ask that you would do a great work among us, not for the sake of man, but for the sake of the God-man, Jesus Christ, in whom we have hope and in whose name we pray. Amen.